third verse of that last song with the chorus was uh, very encouraging. Thank you, Brandon. <clears throat> so the lesson this morning is going to be on Luke 6. I mentioned uh, last week that um, a lot of the lessons that I'm going to be teaching for a while um, are going to be on strengthening our foundation. Uh, I think that'll be just really helpful for us where we are right now as a group. And I think it'll just be really valuable. Um, and Luke 6 is one sermon Jesus taught that reflects the Sermon on the Mount in a lot of ways. It is a lot of the, the same content. But the content at the same time is distinct. It is different. And the setting and the timing seem to be different. The way that I've kind of thought about the similarities between Luke 6 and how similar that is to the Sermon on the Mount, um, when I travel and I teach in other places, uh, usually I don't teach new lessons. <laughs> usually I teach lessons I've taught before uh, that I've taught here. And sometimes there's like one or two lessons where I think, you know what, this particular lesson just seems really important, really impactful. So there's maybe one or two lessons that I, I teach more than others. And just kind of imagine for Jesus's early ministry, there's so many times when it mentions that he was teaching, he was in synagogues or teaching outside of synagogues. And what I imagine is the lessons on the Sermon on the Mount and the lessons here in Luke 6 in this sermon are similar because these are the things that needed to be taught, right? That these really encapsulate fundamental things that Jesus was trying to teach everywhere. So this is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, but it's not the same sermon. What I'd like to do is starting from verse 12, this is going to take a little under five minutes, but I would like to read the whole sermon starting in verse 12 uh, as it leads into the sermon. Um, I think it would be super helpful just to kind of get the whole sermon here. Um, but we will only be studying today, 20 through 26. And then I'll be doing two more lessons for the next couple weeks on the rest of the sermon. Luke 6, verse 12. Now it happened that at this time he went off to the mountain to pray, and he was spending the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, who is also, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the crowd was trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, and really quick, mind you, this is similar but different than the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who cry now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and exclude you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For their fathers were doing the same things to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and cry. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers were doing the same things to the false prophets. 
But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who disparage you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your garment, do not withhold your tunic from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. And treat others the same way you want them to treat you. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will become sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure. Press down, shaken together, running over, for by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. And he also spoke a parable to them. Can a blind man guide a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from the abundance of his heart. Now, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house, who dug and went deep, and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the river burst against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who heard and did not do accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the river burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. So just notice at the end of this sermon, Jesus emphasizes this is the foundation for his disciples. You know, so these parables here in 46 through the end of the chapter, Jesus is saying these words are a solid foundation to build on. So I want you to think, when you hear, when you hear the idea of fundamentals, you know, when someone needs to be taught fundamentals, what, what comes to your mind? And I'll suggest to you, this sermon needs to come to your mind. Or the Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus also says is like a foundation being built on the rock, similarly. These are the things that Jesus himself says are the foundation. And I think these things are easy to neglect. I think the greatest issue I run into with myself, with others, I think it's just a universal thing. It is so easy to neglect the teaching of Jesus. And I think the greatest issue we face is just a lack of commitment to the actual teaching of Jesus. And not just a commitment to knowing it, a commitment to doing it. These words that we're going to be talking about. So I'm going to be doing this in three lessons because I think we have to slow down 
And these things are easy to blow over and I think not think deeply enough about how, how important they are, how challenging they are. And with 20 through 26, I really couldn't find a lot of reference sermons from brethren on these, on these things. And that doesn't indicate that people aren't applying it or talking about it. Um, but it just seems, it seems rare to slow down and just focus on what Jesus is saying here. And I think, I think as we slow down, we'll see how important and also how radical it is. So as we get back into 20 through uh, 26, there's some words he uses, blessed and then woe. When Jesus uses the term blessed, he's not just referring to something nice or good. This is a term that is rarely used by Jesus and rarely used by God. But when it is used, it is used in reference to complete fulfillment. It's like you have reached completeness in life. And the word woe it's not just saying that something's not very good. It's a, it's a pronouncement of judgment. So these are both very extreme words that he's using on both sides of this. So let's, let's re go back and let's read 20 through 26 again, not to be too redundant, but this is the text we'll be focusing on. 20 through 26 again. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who cry now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and exclude you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for their fathers were doing the same things to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and cry. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers were doing the same things to the false prophets. So what I'm going to do is the, the PowerPoint for this is going to be a little different. I'm going to put the, the blessings and the woes side by side. But I'm going to start with just looking at the, the blessings. I want you to think, would you want to be a part of a kingdom like this? <laughs> you know, this is a group of people who they're poor, they're hungry, they're weepy. You know, is that very attractive? <laughs> you know, it's like this is a kingdom of losers. If this is the kind of people who make up the kingdom of Jesus. And not just are they poor and hungry and weepy, but they're excluded. You know, they're not popular. They're not well known. They don't have a lot of leverage in their society. So what, what draws you <laughs> to this? It's the hope that these people have. It's that the gospel is very clearly sustaining and fulfilling this group of people. And that is more evident in their need and in their want than in the absence of it. And just something fundamental, this is kind of just working into this. We'll talk more specifically about applications kind of later in the lesson. But just broadly, you notice that these people are blessed being poor because theirs is the kingdom. So it's, it's not just that being poor innately blesses you or being hungry innately blesses you. It's the idea that as you plug these qualities into the kingdom, now it's a blessing, right? Rather than a curse. So even though the world would despise these things, and even in this situation, usually the goal of the world is to get out of this and fight your way out. You know, Jesus says you're blessed being hungry because you will be filled. Blessed are you for crying or weeping now, for you shall laugh, right? So the idea is Jesus' disciples are future-oriented. They're focused on and also completely reshaped by future reward. And I want you to think, how often do you think about 
the future reward of eternal life, of the resurrection. How often do you think about that? You know, to Jesus, eternal life and the eternal purpose and nature of God the Father was so real to him that it shaped all of his decisions. It integrated into all of his conversations. It was his motivation for everything he did. And I think if we're honest, it's just not the same for us. It's certainly not the same for me. This challenges me that oftentimes the reason I am not oriented toward the future enough and future reward is because I'm too satisfied right now. And my need and what I'm lacking and how broken life is, is just not as apparent to me as what Jesus is saying here. Jesus's disciples are not only focused on, they are completely reshaped by the reality of future reward. We have to learn to treat eternal truths to be as real as Jesus did. And one more thing here before we get into the next section. Well, there's there's two more things. One more thing. One of those two things, sorry, is think about Jesus. Did Jesus come as a rich man or did Jesus come as a poor man? Did Jesus have the power to be rich? Did he have the wisdom to be rich? He did. Jesus chose to come into the world as a poor man. You know, did Jesus know what it meant to be hungry? You know, Jesus had a lot of good meals with people, I imagine. But Jesus, I think, was often hungry. And was Jesus described as a man of laughter? (laughs) He's described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Was Jesus popular with everyone? Did Jesus always say things that people enjoyed? No, he was hated and excluded for what he stood for. So the reality is what Jesus is giving, in a sense, is a self-portrait of himself. And what's attractive about these qualities is not just the promise associated with them in the future. It's that in these qualities, we associate with Jesus himself. Secondly, if this was all Jesus said, I think this would be fairly easy to digest. You know, handing out blessings to the poor, it's like, oh, great. You know, I'm glad Jesus is being nice to the poor people. I think it's the next section that makes this so radical. You know, this is very personal. So in most translations, he says, you who are poor, you who are hungry. So I imagine he's turning his gaze, gaze toward his disciples. And I imagine he's looking at some people. And he says, woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well-fed now. Woe to you who laugh. And I imagine that now the sermon has changed. <laughs> now it's not just comforting. Now it's not just making the poor and the hungry feel much better. But now it's convicting to the people who have riches and abundance. So he says, woe to the rich because they're receiving their comfort right now in full. And woe to those who are well-fed because there's no need. They're totally saturated. You know, and those who have laughter, you know, none of these things seem like a problem. You know, you're blind to danger. You know, if you're rich, well-fed, and laughing, do you feel like you're in some great danger? (laughs) Absolutely not. You know, and I worry that when we hear this, we put our guard up. I know I do. I've had to really tell myself, get your guard down. Let Jesus speak. Let him speak to me. You know, because I I feel rich. I feel well-fed. You know, and I I laugh a lot. But I've got to let my guard down. Let Jesus talk to me. Let it be personal to me. So woe to you who are rich and well-fed and laugh when all men speak well of you. These These are challenging things. They're convicting things. But we really have to listen. And I think a part of what we need to understand here, this is a proverb A satisfied soul tramples the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul, any bitter thing is sweet. You know, when we feel satisfied in our lives, Jesus' teaching will seem bitter. You know, we're just not going to have concern. Our need is not going to be very apparent. And so we just, we blow by it. You know, Jesus is trying to warn us of things that harden our hearts 
that make it harder to follow him, that make it harder to care about his instructions. And he blesses conditions that make it easier for us to have a tender heart, conviction, love, and compassion. To a hungry soul, any better thing is sweet. Applying Jesus' will will always require sacrifice, no matter how poor a person might be. It always will. But you know, to a truly hungry, hungry soul, even the bitterness of that sacrifice will be sweet because they'll more clearly see the promise associated with it. Now, I want to ask this question. I do think this is important. And I'm going to take a long journey and we'll come back to Luke 6. This is going to be um, deliberately redundant, okay? But I want to ask the question, are these just spiritual metaphors, right? So is Jesus meaning like the spiritually poor, the spiritually hungry? Because that's, that's kind of what he did in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So the Sermon on the Mount is, you know, Jesus is using tangible concepts for spiritual points. But he doesn't say blessed are the poor in spirit. He doesn't say blessed are, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Are these just spiritual metaphors? And a metaphor meaning a figure of speech. You know, this isn't literal. It's just a figure of speech, a metaphor. Are these spiritual metaphors? Well, there are six times to my counting. There might be more and maybe I just overlooked a couple. But to my count, there are six times Jesus directly, strongly warns against riches and the desire for wealth. Six times. I think that might be more times than Jesus warns about any other single thing. So the first one is where we are in our text. Chapter 8, verse 14. The seeds sown on the thorny ground, they're choked with riches and the pleasures of this life. Chapter 12, verse 15, he says, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Not just beware, not just be on guard. Beware and be on guard against every form of greed. Not just the exaggerated forms, not just the noticeable forms. Chapter 14, 33, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Chapter 16, 13 through 15, you cannot serve God in wealth. And chapter 18, verse 24, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And you know something about this? The disciples, when they heard this, do you remember how they responded? They were amazed and they said, well, then who can be saved? Think about that. They had been walking with Jesus in poverty for years. They had been seeing Jesus bless people and teach people who were poor. They had heard Jesus emphasizing these things all along. And still, still, at the end of his life in chapter 18, as Jesus is nearing the end, they still think, Jesus, if the rich can't enter the kingdom of heaven, it's hard for them. Well, then who could be saved? I think that shows how hard it is to accept this teaching. And that was one of the reasons why I slowed down and realized I need to really just focus one sermon on this because I think there's something here that the Bible demonstrates we really struggle to really take to heart. Even the disciples following Jesus, 1824, which is no different than everything else he's been saying, they were shocked when they heard this. And then in James, we'll just read a couple of these. In James chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, the brother of humble circumstances, that is the poor man, physically poor, is to glory in his high positions. That's similar to what Jesus taught. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, meaning the woes that Jesus taught. You know, glory in it. Rejoice that Jesus tells you the danger of what you have and the need to completely recalibrate how you are thinking about what you have. 
James chapter 2, 5 and 6. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? And then in the context, partiality toward the rich and poor, he says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into courts? And then chapter 5 emphasizes similar things. The church is, to Reve- the church is in Revelation. Uh, back one more slide. The church is in Revelation. There's only two churches of seven that are spiritually doing well and are not rebuked. Two out of seven. One of them is Smyrna. And in Revelation 2.9, Jesus says to the Christians in Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich because they are doing well. Revelation 3, the church in Laodicea, they're lukewarm. And he says he's going to spit them out of his mouth because they say, I'm rich. I've become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Wow. Guys, this is a struggle. And I think a part of this is just realizing what Jesus is saying is so easy to blow past, to not think deeply enough about it, and to practically really adapt what it is that he's saying. Because I think we're just drawn to the right side of this board. We want to be rich. And, it's, and, and to be rich isn't just about having paper money. It's about what riches get you. Riches get me vacations. Riches get me fun things. Riches get me comfortable things. Riches help me not experience difficulty and danger. You know, we want to be without well-fed. We want to laugh. And it's not that those things are inherently sinful, but I think if we listen, we've got to realize they are dangerous. I want you to consider the apostles' example. One, one more example, and I want you to turn there, in part because it's too much to put on the board. But I think it would be helpful to, to read it together. First Corinthians chapter 4. Again, this is still on the ideas. Is Jesus just speaking in metaphors, or should we really think he's talking literally? He is literally pronouncing woes on physical circumstances. First Corinthians 4 verse 8. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have ruled without us. And this is the Corinthians are worldly minded. And how I wish that you had ruled indeed so that we might also rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for the sake of Christ, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are glorious but we are without honor. To this present hour, we hunger and thirst and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to plead. We have become as the scum of the world, the grime of all things, even until now. Wow. Is Paul talking metaphorically there? You know, Paul, his example, and he doesn't just say himself. You know, you notice in verse 9, he's talking about himself and the apostles. This is the example of the apostles. Where did they fit in on this contrast here? Did did it seem like the apostles embraced some kind of tangible reality in what Jesus was blessing here? Does it sound like they took seriously and even realistically these woes he's pronouncing? So again, We'll try to work through balancing this, but we really have got to be careful that we don't qualify these woes so much that Jesus' words completely lose their power. 
You know, I think we can go so far into, well, it's not wrong to be rich. I mean, it's not wrong to be well-fed to the point where it's like there's no conviction left anymore. (laughs) You know, there's nothing wrong with it anymore. Whereas Jesus, I think, is saying something we really need to listen to. So first principle with this, I think we just have to recognize how careful we need to be, how careful we need to be to embrace these values. This is not natural. This is not going to happen just because you heard this sermon. Something more needs to be done where this is thought about seriously, personally. It needs to be digested very deliberately. We've got to be careful to embrace these values. The Church of Laodicea didn't have it. James was writing to Christians who it seems like didn't understand it. The Corinthians were a total mess, and in part was because they didn't understand this. Jesus starts his sermon here for a reason. Because our values influence our decisions, our attitude and behaviors more than any practical application. And I think that's why Paul starts his letter referring to these things. Because Paul is going to be writing applications that if they are not building themselves on this foundation, those applications are going to lose their power. Because Jesus' teaching demands these values. And so if I try to give instruction, if Jesus tries to give instruction, but if that instruction is based on these values that someone is not sharing in, those applications will either not be made at all, or their application will be so shallow. It will either be short-lived or meaningless in the impact that it has on that person's heart. Our values dictate our deepest thoughts and our desires. And our thoughts and desires dictates our behaviors. So our values dictate our deepest thoughts and desires. We can become obsessed with things that God warns us that we should not have. You know, we can be obsessed with a relationship or wanting something uh, monetarily, physically, that really is just not good for us spiritually. But a person could become so obsessed with, I need this, I want this so badly, where the counsel of Christ has no power. <laughs> This is what it takes to maintain a humble heart. So we have to change our values. Changing our values impacts us more than any instruction can. The problem is we oftentimes, coming to Jesus, we already have a foundation. We have already have our values established. A disciple lets Jesus destroy any foundation that gets in the way of his cornerstone. So when we come to Jesus, when we're here, what Jesus is implying is if the foundation of our life doesn't match this, we've got some work to do. And we might have to really let Jesus get into our lives and mess up some things and break down some things and start rebuilding. So let's think practically about this first set of applications here. And these will just be some brief applications that I hope are helpful. I don't think this covers the gambit of how these things can be applied, but maybe to get your gears turning and get some conversation going about this, Um, here are some things that I think are, are more practical that stem out of this. To see the danger of abundance leads to a proper use of it and the willingness to sacrifice it. You know, abundance is dangerous. It can shut us down. You know, those six warnings we saw in Luke, there's other things Jesus says about greed that I didn't include there. Those are just the most simple, direct warnings He doesn't warn about those things so many times. And the New Testament doesn't spend so much time warning about this because it's just not much of a problem. (laughs) You know, abundance is dangerous. And I think we're blind to that way too often. It can shut us down. And Jesus, again, is warning us of the things that desensitize us to how broken reality really is. I think too often 
when things are hard, when we're in want, we think, why is this happening to me? You know, why is God doing this to me? We should switch that to when we have abundance. We don't ask that question when things are going well. When things are going well, we should think, why is this happening? Why do I have these things I have? Philippians 4, 11 and 12, I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, so Paul in Philippians, when he says, I've learned the secret of having contentment in want, but also in plenty. I can do all things through Christ who strength. I think what, what Paul is saying there is there's a secret. There, there's a, a, a learning curve to listening to Jesus and, and having abundance and learning how to be content with it. But what does Jesus say about how to use that? And learning how to not, how, learning how to make sure that abundance doesn't become a stumbling block. But then also being in want. You know, a person can be poor, hungry, and weeping, and that can be a stumbling block. And both ways, it carefully requires that we listen to Jesus. And not just listen with our ears, but apply what needs to be done in our hearts, right? So there's a sense where we have to learn. We've got to learn how to handle abundance, but that starts when we realize it's dangerous. We think too easily to be in want is dangerous, whereas Jesus is saying, no, that's spiritually the safer place to be. Jesus' values disconnect me from a consumer or convenience mentality towards people and brethren. And I think this is so important. I got to tell you guys, I think about this a lot with Savannah. You know, how many times have I known, been contacted about brethren who moved to Savannah and the church here is too small for them, doesn't have enough programs, there aren't enough kids, whatever, and they don't just attend Jessup or Hoboken or somewhere where there's sound Christians. They attend a church that is not sound in doctrine and they know it. But they're willing to compromise it because the church here doesn't have what they want. Listen, that, that's one application. But Jesus' teaching is going to require this. You know, give and hope, expect nothing in return. You know, what Jesus is saying is we can't be thinking in a consumer or convenience-oriented way. We too, easily, we too easily idolize the gods of comfort and convenience. We idolize the gods of success and achievement, and that will inevitably leak into our relationships. You know, Jesus did not have relationships because they were convenient. Jesus didn't pick the disciples because that was going to be the most exciting and fun thing for him. You know, so yes, this applies to what am I looking for in a local church. That applies to what am I looking for in my relationship with you. What am I thinking about in terms of my purpose for being a part of this local church? You know, this breaks me out of a consumer mentality of just thinking it's about what I can get out of it. Or I'm upset with you when you inconvenience me. You know, if you burden me, now we have a problem and I need to get out of this relationship. No, this is critical. The foundation of having a servant-oriented mentality towards people, even though Jesus here is talking about situation and circumstance. If we are thinking in a consumer kind of way about the church, about people, what that means is we are not applying these things. And I think often, again, that the issue at work when someone doesn't have the right attitude about relationships in a local church, they are not building their foundation on the rock. They're not digging deep. 
and they suffer the consequences for it. And it's no surprise then when they compromise doctrine to be somewhere more entertaining or convenient for them. And Jesus' values equip me to find contentment and joy even in worldly loss and want. So this is kind of self-explanatory. But I think it's easy to despair when things are not going our way. When we wish things were better, it's easy to, to become just overreactive. And I've seen it too. I know this is gonna, I know this is gonna sound really bad maybe, but I've seen it treated like the end of the world to go a full day without eating any food. I know it sounds bad, but that's really not the worst thing. You know, we can survive a day without eating. We can survive a couple of days without eating. You know, and I think what's, it's not just about, you know, being forced by circumstance. You just, you can't find food. You can't get food. You know, Jesus in serving people oftentimes went long periods without eating. You know, it's not the worst thing in the world to be in want, to be weepy, to cry, to be in a situation where you just, you cannot seem to get out of sorrow or depression. You know, God is with a person in those situations. We just, we think the wrong way. We panic when we're in want. I think Jesus's words give us assurance. We need to think differently about those things. We can be content like Paul, even when we are in want. We can go beyond that and even have joy to the point where we're willing to sacrifice our abundance. We're willing to sacrifice our convenience to do the will of Jesus. So finally, what are the practical implications of this last part here? When men hate you for the sake of the Son of Man. This is really convicting, but I think this is the truth here. Uh, I think we, we all, me first all, the plank is definitely in my eye with this one. Often want people to be saved without having to say anything difficult or upsetting. I think that's what we want. You know, and I think that's the best thing compared to another aspect. We just don't care. You know, we just, we don't, we don't want to even think about that. We just want to go through our lives and not even think about the fact that people are really lost. Wow. People going to hell is a reality. People going to heaven is a reality. But I think, you know, when we're, when we're kind of on our way, to thinking the right way. I think this is something we all struggle with. We want people to be saved. We don't want to rock the boat. You know, we don't want to have to say the difficult thing. We don't want to be controversial. We don't want to ah, say something that might be upsetting. So it's like, we would really prefer it. You know, the Bible's there. People can read it. So, you know, God's so powerful that he could just move them to read the Bible. Yes, that's true. (laughs) God can move people to read their Bibles. But when you think about Jesus' example, you know, verse 40, Jesus says, a servant fully trained, a student, a disciple, fully trained will be like his teacher. We are saved out of the world to be brought back to the image of God, to be like Jesus. I'll tell you, I think Luke, Luke demonstrates Jesus' boldness more than any other gospel. And Jesus is bold in all the gospels. You know, Matthew, Mark, John, Jesus is always bold. But wow, in Luke especially. I mean, if you try to tally times when Jesus is uncomfortably bold, I think it's more in Luke than anywhere else. To become like Jesus is to become more bold. And I think this puts to the test how real we see grace is and eternal life is. We have to realize When we have anxiety about saying the needed thing or asking the hard question, doesn't that make us more like Jesus? You know, was Jesus a robot? Do you think Jesus had some anxiety about saying things like he did to the Pharisees or having hard conversations? 
You know, when we suffer emotionally because of being excluded and hated, we can rejoice because that's the same thing the prophets endured. We're, we're thinking the same way they did. We're experiencing the same emotions. Grace becomes real when we're willing to make those sacrifices. And he says, woe to you and all men speak well of you. You know, again, we naturally, we want that. We want to be well-liked. We don't want to rock the boat. You know, it's so easy to think, well, we're supposed to be loving. We're supposed to be gentle and kind. You know, we don't want to be harsh and abrasive. There's a time to be careful to not be abrasive. But I think we often go too far with that. And I think we're too careful. I think we almost need to get back to emphasizing, we've got to be more bold. We need to be willing to take more risks in speaking the truth. Yes, we need to do it in love. Yes, we need to watch our intentions. But wow, I think our culture aggressively fights against being biblically bold. So to be like Jesus is to be more bold. It's easy to become crippled by fear. It's easy to be afraid of asking simple questions. You know, things like, you know, what do you believe about this? Or do you go to church anywhere? Sometimes it's just really simple questions that can create profound conversations. Again, when men hate us, if they respond badly, we're still blessed. If people don't want to be around us or talk to us anymore because we asked a question about baptism and we said it's essential for salvation, or we say denominations aren't the church that you read about in the Bible. People don't want to be around you anymore because you said that. They think you're some lunatic for saying that. Wow, blessed are you because now you are more like Jesus. This is when grace becomes more real. This is when eternal life begins to really matter more to us, when we cling more to the reality of Jesus' example. That's where we'll stop this morning. Again, I hope that these values were conveyed, I think, in a way that needs to be conveyed. I know it's convicting and challenging. I need to hear these things. I've really got to work on reorienting my perspective. It's just so easy to be caught up in just being so comfortable and then missing the kind of conviction that I need to have about how broken life is and how much help people need and my own need for God. So let's, let's really work on that, building our foundation on the rock and digging deep. All right. So I'm going to say a prayer for these things, but after that prayer, if, if there's anything that needs to be brought forward before the church here uh, during the invitation song, please know that that is an important and good time to do that and ask for help. Let's pray.